Hello, and welcome to another episode of Clear on Life. Today, I interview a death doula. Ani Chozzo, or Maria Montenegro, born to Puerto Rican parents and hailing from Philadelphia, Germany, Iowa, East Coast, India, and Iowa again, has lived her life immersed in Dharma since an encounter with illness and mortality at 12 left her with questions she did not find answers to within the Catholic faith of her upbringing. She went on to study world religions at Smith College and Harvard Divinity School and trained intensively with masters from both the Theravada and Tibetan Buddhist traditions since the 90s. She has also worked to engage theory with practice of active compassion, spending much time working with dying, bereaved, or existentially challenged. She's an ACPE, board-eligible, interfaith chaplain, and more recently, an ordained Buddhist nun. This interview was quite a journey. Enjoy. Maria, welcome to Clear on Life. Thank you. And we're going to get clear on death, right? Clear on death. Awesome. So you are a death chaplain. Well, I'm technically, I, it's the training is in spiritual caregiver or slash interfaith chaplain. Sometimes they call me a death doula. Mm-hmm. But instead of birthing babies, I birth deaths. Or I should say I facilitate birthing deaths. Birthing deaths, <laughs> as if it's something that's coming into existence? Well, in a sense it is, right? A death is coming into existence by happening and once it happens we're not talking about uh, the the death is occurring it wasn't there before in mm-hmm. the same way even though we're dying every moment mm-hmm. so yeah the final the, the big death death with a big D when you're gone and you have no way of communicating with the rest of us well at least when your body's gone I see the rest is Beyond my pay grade. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know that there are things out there. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it that you do as a death doula or death chaplain? So this work is really about um, showing up for the dying and their families in the capacity of someone who can sort of... um, be witness to or walk alongside of people who are going through that process, the active dying process and family members um, to provide spiritual, emotional, existential support. Um, Yeah. And you're doing this, um, so how do people find you (laughs) for something like this? Well, I have a website. And usually, um, especially during the COVID pandemic, people, it's been very much through word of mouth because things had to be done through Zoom. And that's a very, very different thing from physically being present uh, for a person who is dying. And that um, is a different thing, requires a different set of skills almost. But yeah, people can find me on my website, bodywave.com. Or yeah, that's really the best way. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Why does one need mm. a death doula or a death chaplain? Which one do you prefer, by the way? Well, either one. Death doula is fine. Um, well, it's it's interesting whether a person needs it or not. I mean, uh, thousands upon thousands of human deaths ha- happen every day, of course. Uh, I think I think the thing is is that we don't think of dying people as having needs. Huh. And dying people have needs. That is to say that there's a certain set of things that you can do to make the dying process easier on people. And there's a broad spectrum of ways to die. And I've witnessed many from really grueling deaths. And by grueling, I mean that the individual didn't want to go, was hanging on, was miserable and in pain and suffering incredibly. 
and there are deaths that are like an airplane taking off like that of a really well-trained for example yogi or meditator i've seen both i witnessed both i've been present for both types of death um so there are needs there are there are there are behaviors there are things that we can do to ease um the experience of a dying person and i think that in the west we're not really I mean, we don't. Have you ever heard of a death education? You know, we've got sex education. We don't have death education, right? No. And it's, a, it's an incredibly important um, field. And we could avert so much unbelievable suffering if we sort of collectively decided that we wanted to pay attention and not sort of treat death as this embarrassment, this real... You know, it's almost like... You, you you read the obituaries, right? You know, that she fought, you know, she lost her battle with cancer, for example. That languaging. Mm-hmm. That languaging of, um, dis- you know, how we relate to disease and the dying process. It's it's almost like a failure, like a personal failure that we die. <laughs> First of all, it was a battle. Right. And then they lost. That's right a battle to be won or lost. Why is that a problem? Well, do you think it's a battle lost when a leaf falls off a tree in the fall? Are we not a part of nature? We are. So it's a natural process, dramatized and therefore, that can actually, I mean, well, well, that person's dead. They don't care, right, as much what the obituaries talks about. But you, I think you're referring to more of the culture in which death is viewed a certain way. Right. And that obituary is a symptom of that. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well said. So what's the, it's going back to the death being a natural occurrence in life and we don't have on in the west much training right or much dialogue yes or even um it's something of a taboo uh, to talk about death i mean now nowadays there are things like death cafe which is a fascinating and incredible movement that you should Death Cafe. Death Cafe, which is this idea, I believe it's a Swiss person that did the first one, I'm not certain though, but it's this idea of getting people together, you know, at a cafe and discussing their, you know, people's feelings about dying, just to get a conversation going about this inevitability that we will all, no one gets out alive. And how, how are we going to, how is that benefit, you know, I'm, having trained in Buddhism, this is a hugely central part of my training, our various meditations on death. And we do meditations on impermanence, but we specifically do meditations on impermanence in the form of my own mortality. And those meditations have a very particular effect on the mind. Uh, It's fascinating. And there's a couple of questions there. One is, obviously, most people won't have access to those meditations, or they don't currently. Right. Right, so Unless so they don't have that. Right. And so is that where you come in, like, as you're guiding them through that death? What are you actually doing? Are you hand-holding them in some way? Are you providing some emotional support? Yes. But, well, both, and depending on the individual, right? So a lot of, it depends on the emotion that the the person is manifesting. A lot of people manifest tremendous fear, anxiety. Other people have a very uh, accepting uh, frame of mind. Mm. They're at peace. They feel like they've lived a good life. They've resolved. They're resolved with their family members. They're they're, They're feeling okay. They're tired of being in a sick or aging body. And they're ready, mentally prepared. And so those people have an easier time. 
oftentimes people who have, my experience has been, uh, this is not a statement um, for or against religion, it's simply the case that um, many people who do have a strong religious faith seem to have an easier time, not in every case, but many times. Um, and other people who have unresolved issues, uh, a lot of family, um, difficult family dynamics, uh, or other types of fears and attachment have a more difficult time going out. And so it's, it, it depends on the situation and uh, talking to people and hearing what they need, hearing what the family needs, trying to sort of help them um, tie up loose ends a lot of the time. Now, before our recording, you were sharing briefly about this example of a man who died, he had mm. a lot of cancer everywhere. Yes. And he had this conversation with his wife as well. Yeah. Do you want to go over that? Oh, yeah. That was time? an incredible um, patient visit when I was in, uh, w when I was a chaplain resident in New Mexico. Basically, um, this was a gentleman uh, in his uh, late 50s, maybe 57, who was at end-stage cancer that had spread absolutely to every major organ, including uh, his brain. And uh, he was, you know, you have to picture the scene, lots of, you know, the IVs, the, the tubes, the, uh, and um, his wife was with him and his teenage son with, was with him. And uh, the nurses paged me uh, having told me that this man was really, really actively dying or needing to die, but his wife was um, at his bedside, you know, saying, honey, you can beat this. Come on, you can fight this. And so they paged me and they asked me to offer her some, some spiritual care. And, you know, a lot of people hear spiritual care or they hear chaplaining and they, they think it's a denominational thing. It's nothing of the sort. Spiritual care or interfaith chaplaining is really um, offering spiritual, emotional, existential support. It's not denominational. If the person needs denominational support, so for example, if it's a person that's Catholic and they want to speak to a priest, that you know, we can arrange that, right? But the care that we give is to to help them um, get through the experience. It's uh, it's not a it's not a religious thing exclusively. It can be, if, if that's what the patient would like. If the patient wants prayer, we can offer prayer. Um, but if the patient wants to talk about um, something unresolved in their emotional situation or whatever, we can go there as well. But this particular situation was very interesting because he was, the, the gentleman, the patient was really, really very, very ill um, and imminently dying. And that was evident by his, you know, oxygen levels and all of, you know, all of these different uh, markers. So when I arrived at the patient's room, that's exactly the, what the nurses had said was, you know, she was egging him on and urging him to fight and, you know, you can get through this. And, and so I came in briefly and introduced myself and asked if I could speak to her outside because I didn't want to agitate the patient. Um, so we exited the room and uh, I basically told her, you know, I can, I really, I can see that you love your husband so much um, and, uh, and I can see he's left you a legacy that you're, you know, an amazing legacy with his life and your closeness. But may I just offer that uh, it seems to me that he might be having some needs right now that it might be good to look at and to pay attention to. If you want, if you want, I, we can discuss that. And she said, oh, definitely. Um, and I said, well, you know what the scans say. You don't need for me to tell you that his, his body has cancer everywhere. And I'm, I'm certain that if he could fight this, if he could, um, biologically speaking, uh, come out of this, he, he would do everything that he could. Um, but it seems to me that what he might need from you right now is 
permission to go. Um, and I asked her, you know, how does that, how does that land for you? And she really, her face was, um, it just, her face, her expression almost, it just almost dropped. And she looked at me and she says, oh my God, I've been so selfish. And I said, no, you haven't been selfish, you've been human. And we're not trained in our culture to consider the needs of the dying, but he does have needs. And one of his needs is to understand that you're going to be okay in his absence because as your man, he wants to be there for you. He wants nothing more than to be there for you. And if he doesn't hear that permission from you, he's going to hang on for dear life in spite of the fact that he's at end stage cancer. He's probably in some significant pain or if he's not in pain, um, it's because the medicines have settled the pain, but he's in, in the emotional pain of not being able to fight anymore. So the greatest gift that you can give him right now is permission. Honey, we're going to be fine. Thank you for everything you've done for us. And I think, I think that'll bring you some peace because you'll know that you, you gave him the absolute best that you could at the end of his life. You sent him off with 100% support for this transition, in this transition. And she took it all in. She went into that room. She did exactly what I suggested, and he was gone five minutes later. It was extraordinary to witness. Wow. He was ready. Yeah. He was desperately ready to go. And just hearing that from her gave him the peace of mind to be able to go. That's quite a story. Yeah. I have so many. <laughs> and each death is, it's just like a thumbprint. Each one is absolutely unique. Mm. And each one is instructional in a way. I, I always think to myself, you know, you know, I've seen it all, and then, <laughs> no, I haven't, <laughs> in terms of the things that can play out. Have you worked with, um, is, is there a certain age group, or is it? Mm. All sizes and shapes, ages. All sizes and shapes, ages, backgrounds, religious, non-religious, kids, babies, teenagers, elders, middle age, everything, you name it. I had a lot, since I was in New Mexico for that training, um, I had a lot of Native American, uh, First American folks that were an incredible privilege to work with. Um, and, of course, the Mexican-American community and... Yeah, people of all different walks of life, yeah. Is there an age group or a demographic in there that gets you more than anyone else? You know, kids are, the thing, the thing that's incredible about kids who are terminally ill is that sometimes they manifest astonishing wisdom and compassion and equanimity. It's it, consistently. They're the ones that are reassuring the parents. It's okay, mom, don't worry. <laughs> That's incredible to see. So you're, you're not just guiding the kid, but the family as well. That's right. And what you're saying is that it could be even a bigger deal for the family That's right. than the kid. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, I mean imagine for a parent to lose a a child, a six, 12-year-old child, right? It's not the so-called natural order of things, is it? It's not. It's the biggest nightmare. The worst, the, the most hellish nightmare for a parent is to lose a child, for the child to die before they do. Yeah, some of the kids I've worked with have been absolute, I mean, I just think they're angels pretending to be humans. <laughs> What is it like for you to guide that process when you see a, a child die? 
it's, well, it's extremely humbling. You know, the thing about working with the dying, uh, it's just, it marks you in a way. It's it's like doing a retreat, you know, and, and like, as I mentioned, we we have a lot of meditations on death in Buddhism. It's one thing to meditate on it, but it's, it, it, it's, there's no better sort of dying death retreat than to actually be dealing with death and dying. Uh, if it's not your own, well, just to see people and to witness people, um, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily humbling. And I would say that in my experience, people that are doing a lot of work, people in healthcare, nurses, doctors, um, chaplains and so forth, there, there is, there's a certain perspective on life that you gain interacting with the actively dying. And part of that is immense appreciation. There's, there's a quality of not taking things for granted because you know you can just go like that. You know, you know. And when you're dealing with dying people actively, you, you become aware. Uh, you're, you're less in denial, let me put it that way. You're less in denial about the inevitability of your own dying. And that less denial um, changes you on a number of levels. It's very multivalent. You gain great gratitude. There's a quality of, um, there's, a, there's a certain poignancy. You know, you, you, you'll walk around and, and you'll, <laughs> sometimes I have these random thoughts where I'll be, you know, sitting in a restaurant and I'll think, I'll look around and I'll think in, in a hundred years from now, none of these people will be here. None of these people will be here. And so that kind of perspective lends a certain gravitas in terms of how should I be showing up here for others, for myself. It's sometimes a bit paralyzing <laughs> though too. How should I be sure? Because you really, you see the preciousness of life so, uh, in such a raw way that, uh, yeah. What got you into this? <laughs> oh. So I... Most people don't think about becoming, you know, a death chaplain or working in a hospice or a children's hospice. Right. But the way you're talking about it, there's a lot of value in it. Yeah. I from see a, lot a of personal that. growth perspective. Mm, definitely. And I take there's a demand for that because as you're pointing out, in the Western culture, we just don't have that way of relating to death. So I guess it's, it's something we are all afraid of. And yeah. then it's we're just running away from trying to run away from it. And somehow we end up there anyway. Yeah. So it's not that elegant, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Well, first of all, I've had a lot of personal brushes with death. And the first major one happened when I was 12. And that was life-changing for me. Completely life-changing. Th after that happened, I thought of my life in terms of before I was 12 and after I was 12. Um, so, yeah, so that was a big one for me. And then I had several more after that, intermittently. At 19, another one at 22. Um, <laughs> two or three in my n in the nineties. Uh, one significant one in two thousand and ten when I had I was in a car accident. But I would say that the I, I was always since I started Buddhist training in the late eighties, early nineties. I was um, often found myself being called upon to to help somebody that was dying, and so I was doing it on a volunteer basis. I was very active in a Buddhist uh, center, Dharma center, and and I was, you know, I would be called occasionally to come and and show up uh, for somebody who was dying that was part of maybe the group. Were you um, so so? I take there were other people in your Buddhist group over there, mm. but they called upon you versus other people. Well, what was that? You know, I don't know. I mean. Um, it's, it might be because I was um, 
I was really active in that particular Buddhist community. And uh, I remember one, one gentleman that was um, uh, in his 50s passing away and his wife showed up at the temple and, and, and he, was already, he was admitted already at the local hospital and, and she just, for some reason, she, she said, can you come and you know, pray for my husband? And so I went. Uh, and so that sort of got things going. And then the big thing though that made me seek out formal chaplaincy training was that after 15 years of being with the teacher that I was with in New Jersey, uh, I was with him at the time that he breathed his last. So, and that experience made me uh, want to formalize the training more. I had I already had a a divinity degree, um, uh, but I hadn't gone the route of pastor or minister or or chaplain with that degree. It was actually a master's of theological studies. So that background facilitated uh, my being accepted to clinical pastoral education. Um, they often look for people with that sort of background who have you know, some um, fluency with various world religions and so forth. And so, uh, so after that teacher passed away in 2004, uh, a few years went by, I'd, I was involved in, in other Dharma projects for other teachers and then I thought, uh, after the car accident, <laughs> I thought I, I think I'll I'll do this training. Somebody suggested that it would be a good uh, good thing, to f a good fit with the degree that I had from years earlier. So um, I would say that the combination of my personal experience, my personal brushes with death, and seeing my teacher, my late teacher, who was an extraordinary <laughs> practitioner, senior monk, uh, Buddhist monk, uh, witnessing his his dying was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life without question. What about it? He was in control. Of his death? Yeah. He was meditating through it. I see. Okay. And that's a very deep topic um, because in, in that tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, the time of death, the consciousness, um, the, the, the process of what, the dissolution of the, it's very hard to describe, the, the consciousness um, as, as the body shuts down, um, the consciousness becomes subtler and subtler and they are able to use um, the dying process to go into a very deep meditation. It's clear light meditation and if the master is um, accomplished they can actually uh, continue meditating after the cessation of the breath so in in that tradition the cessation of the breath unlike you know what we think of as clinical death in in the west um, the cessation of the breath is only the beginning of the dying process right so once the what what are called the signs appear. There are specific signs that appear uh, when that process is complete. And if you have a very well-trained yogi or very well-trained meditator, um, they can continue in that absorption, in that meditation for days. Uh, I think relatively recently, within the last couple of years, there was a, a Tibetan Buddhist master living in Taiwan. I think he had a 30-day meditation after the cessation of the breath. And how do you know? Because their bodies do not decay. There is no smell. The body remains warm and flexible. Uh, it's extraordinary. And when you've witnessed something like that, you just <laughs> nobody can talk you out of what you've seen with your own eyes. And he remained in that meditation six days after the cessation of his breath. But I was with him at the time of the cessation of his breath and then some officiating uh, Buddhist monks were called in to, uh, uh, to assist with the, r the rest of the process. So the, the signs appeared, uh, I think at the sixth day and the following day, uh, he was uh, cremated as per tradition. 
it's extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's very, very difficult to describe. There's, there's a quality to the environment. There's a quality to the room. There's a quality to the light. Uh, this is your you're talking about about the room that my teacher was occupied. It was it, it just it was extraordinary in so many in so many ways. So sounds like that might be um, better, more ideal way of dying. Mm. Why is that versus someone who just has no support or training in right. death? Right. So to see somebody who has mastery of the mind during the dying process is extraordinary. First of all, um, they know what to expect. They're very trained. They know what to expect. They know what to expect in terms of what's happening physically. Uh, they know, in other words, there are various uh, various occurrences, various, various visions that can happen at each stage of the dying process, and they recognize those. So they're, they're able to say, oh, there's the this, there's the vision of that. And so to have that means that you don't have to fear it. You've been trained in how to recognize it, and you have no fear. And fear during dying is, is a big thing. It's very common. People don't know what to expect. It's the fear of the unknown. Absolutely. Absolutely, the fear of the unknown, the fear of shoulda, coulda, woulda. Did I do that? Oops. Did I do? Oops. And and I, I guess also regret, right? Oh, absolutely. I've heard about those uh, stories where nurses were assisting people dying and they, they hear about people's regrets. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you don't often hear, oh, I regret not having made more money. I, I regret missed opportunities for kindness. I regret not hanging out with my kids more. You hear so many amazing things. And so I, I take you here that often in your line of work. Yeah, I mean... Ideally, you want to have that conversation before the active, active dying process happens. So, you, for example, say you have somebody who has a terminal diagnosis and um, they might have two to three months. You want to start the conversation about how are you with your people? How are you with your sense of... Uh, your feelings about what's happening. Uh, de depending on the language, if they're, you know, depending on the tradition they follow, if they follow a faith tradition, how are you with your God? Uh, and those conversations, if they take place sooner, there's more potential healing and release that can happen for those people, if, if it's carefully guided. And some people will be very open to that, and other people will absolutely not be. And whatever they wish, you have to respect, of course. But my experience is that people, I've had very interesting patients who were initially very, very, very shut down about talking about it. But as they got closer to their own death, that defense or that, that unwillingness to go there starts to sort of fall apart because it's in their faces I think it's because it's in their faces and I think that the ang there's an anxiety that mounts it with respect to things that have not been resolved hmm. I had one uh, one elderly man a patient who was had been very kind of um, an engineer uh, very very educated very cerebral uh, escaped war-torn Europe uh, as a Jew uh, in his childhood, lots and lots of trauma that had been very, very deeply stuffed down. And uh, had initially felt that he didn't want to really discuss things. 
and as the days went by, he he opened up. He needed to resolve the pain of that trauma. It's very interesting. It's sort of like core wounds start to assert themselves. So my recommendation is always to uh, work with your core wounds and as soon as you find as out, as soon as you as soon as you become conscious of them, would you say then, as an extension of that, you might as well just work on that, even if you're not about to die? Absolutely. I, I well, I, you know, I always thought somebody said to me, "Oh, you should you should do death workshops," and I'm like, "Yeah, that's that's going to be really easy to." <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Let me let me advertise for my death row. <laughs> Whether you think you're going to die or not, I invite you to. You know, the thing is, is that it's it's very hard to get to sell people on the idea that this is an important thing to do when you are well. Let's go there. So, sure. what are some of the things one should do while they're well? What should I do right now? Well, I think just really going into deeply into a meditation of I'm going to die I don't know when I'm going to die what are the things that are going to provide me with a, a harmonious peaceful death what sorts of actions what sorts of behavior what kind of life do I need to lead in order to be at peace when my time comes? And those three things are a great, great way to start. I'm going to die and stopping being in denial. Th the reality is that, do you notice? It's like we think that we are not going to die. If we really understood it, we really, really, really understood it. Everything, much of our behavior would change. N maybe not all of it. Our priorities would change, I'm pretty sure understood it or accepted it both both you can't understand it without accepting it and you can't accept it without understanding it we really really on a visceral level we just we really think i mean i've spoken i've had patients that were in their 90s going i'm not going to die or at least not for a good long time Death is something that's not here. It's somewhere. It's, some it's a concept. It's it's a concept and it's other. It happens to everyone else. Not me. I'm going to be, you know, I can stand at the back of the class and not be called on to answer. And just those three things. I am going to die. Just get, get acquainted with that. And, and I am going to die. I don't know when. I don't know when. You know, when I hear people saying, well, you know, I, when I be hear, be, oh, you're just a recent graduate. You've got your whole life ahead of you. No, we don't know that. We have no way of knowing that. Kids die all the time. Babies die all the time. But we are so resistant to this idea. I could walk outside right now and get hit by a bus. That uncertainty about the time of death is, that alone, meditating on that alone can produce extraordinary uh, realization, awareness. It, it, can, it can really pull you back from taking things for granted, which we do. We take it for granted. This is going to be like this tomorrow, that's going to be like that tomorrow. The reality is this could be the last time I see you. One of my very precious spiritual mentors, uh, during his retreat, he often says, this could be the last time we see one another. And that's powerful. And that shaves away this, this habitual tendency that we have to think that we're going to be here forever. Everything's going to be chill. Everything's fine. And so as a result of that kind of sensitivity to our mortality and that of others, It's funny, it's a paradox, it's a heavy thing, it's heavy, people don't want to think about it, it's heavy. But the flip side of, well, at least in my experience, the flip side of doing that is that it, it gives you a, a sense of 
playful curiosity about what's right in front of you at any given moment. And it can, it can just breathe, just that deepening the awareness of death. And there's a beautiful Maranasati Sutta, there's a beautiful Sutta in the Pali Canon, where the Buddha says that uh, he talks about mindfulness of death. Uh, it's extraordinary, I highly recommend reading it. Basically, you know, the idea being that people who are mindful of death once a day are, are not, you know, you have to be mindful of death from one moment to the next. Uh, and if you're not, you're heedless, according to the Buddha. And we're subheedless in our culture. <laughs> we don't even allow ourselves just to, in a very kind of easygoing way, consider our own mortality. It doesn't have to be some, you know, just to give it some reflection. What if someone comes up to you and says, ain't nobody got time for that? Oh, yeah. Well, those are often the people that are really, really, really having a difficult time when the time comes. And I've seen that. What does that it's look like, like, a difficult death? Mm. Well, the appearance is of an individual manifesting extraordinary physical and emotional mental pain. Whether it's thrashing or wailing or moaning or groaning or, you know, I mean, at the very, very end, they're, they're, they're getting quieted down, but the restlessness, anxiety, rest, tremendous restlessness, the difficulty staying still. I mean, nowadays, of course, you have medications that can manage physical pain, but some people don't, some people are not uh, benefited by pain medication. There are people who can't, whose pain cannot be controlled with the, the existing medications, and that's, that is incredibly, yeah. It's so not an easy thing. You're in agony. You're, you're in pain. You're suffering. You're fearful. You're fearful. The fear mental is pain like is a fear of uh, the dread. Uh. And the thing is, is we don't connect that there are behaviors that we can cultivate when we're alive. This is, this is why we should do it way in advance for the people who say they have no time, but you have time to have a miserable death, well. Or, or even a miserable life. Uh, also, also right. I indeed. Mean, there's, there's a lot of people who are miserable day to day That's and right. dread waking up in the morning. That's right. So and that so too. yes, and it's it's the it's sort of the pr the predominant mind state. This is another thing. It's huge in, in Buddhist training. The mind state that you go out with is very very determinative of so many things. What do you mean by determinative? Well. That the mind state depends on something, or well, the mind state. Your experience of the the actual transition is largely determined by the state of mind. You're, if you're, for example, in a very loving and forgiving, and grateful state of mind, that will alter the experience very much. So, mm. versus an angry or resentful or hostile or mean spirited or stingy state of mind, yeah. Does that happen? Like people are dying and they're very hostile and stingy. Mm. For example, I've <laughs> where people will change their will at the last moment because they don't want their like you know son-in-law to get any part of the. Do you know what I mean? They're, yeah. Yeah. Stuff like. Heard of those? <laughs> it's just incredible. It's incredible because they're about to die, but they have the space in their reality exactly to go there. Go there. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm pissed off at, like, yeah, okay. Yeah? I mean, really? Is that what you want to go out with, that attitude? you want? That's what you want to leave in memory and atmosphere? The memory of your loved ones and the... It's funny, right? They are... It's, it's crazy that this is pretty much their last living moment. And it's defined by them being petty. And that's exactly. And that's what I mean by l this is what you want to leave in memory and atmosphere. This is the image of you doing that is what is how you want it is how you will be remembered. 
Remember what he said as he was going out? (laughs) (laughs) But one could say, like, well, I'll be dead. What do I care? Well, it doesn't matter to you that your family members are left with a rather unfortunate taste in their mouth about how Mm. you went out? I mean, this is how we radically condition one another, right? Um, So that's what you mean by selfish, being selfish. Yeah, oh yeah. It's ugly, man. And it leaves, usually, it's, it's heartbreaking to see because it just leaves so much misery and such, such an aftermath of just shatter, shattered thing, you know? Brokenness and, and sadness and despair and, and lack of resolution. And come on, everybody wants harmony. Anybody that tells me that they'd rather, you know, Rem- look back and remember some kind of a trauma around a, the death of a loved one? Come on. So, um, obviously, you know, it's not like they had a great life and in the last moment they turned mean as they died. It can happen. It, it can happen. It so, can happen. So, it's not the case. It's not a lifetime in the making. Like, it's, they're, you know, if someone's changing their will last second. Right. You know, because uh, of some Michigas, right? Yeah. Yeah, like they maybe they've been harboring something, or that's you know they have family issues that just come to they come to a head, all the way at the the end point. Yep. Right, but you're saying that sometimes everything's great and then some shit hits the fan near the end. Yes, and this is this is also you asked earlier, what do you do as a death tool? This is also what we do, is to try to get people in a state of mind that will facilitate a more harmonious passing Mm. so there's a lot of coaching involved with helping people to come to a place of resolution forgiveness you know um uh, ira bayok quotes the ho'opono i can't pronounce it it's a hawaiian practice um, of four slogans forgive me i forgive you thank you i love you and working with those in relation to the dying person and family members. And you don't have to be sort of formulaic about it, you know, like we have to go. But to get people oriented in their minds around those four. Forgive me for whatever, you know, is unresolved between us. I forgive you. Don't worry about what happened at tea time X. It's okay. Thank you. Gratitude is so huge to help a dying person. Thank you so much for everything that you gave us or that you you supported us with. You know, reminding dying people of the good things that they've done so that they can dwell in a space of, of uh, you know, um, harmony, peace. You know, these are things that contribute to a, to a harmonious frame of mind reminding the person of the good things they've done, gratitude and so forth. And then, of course, I love you. And in, in family situations where that those things aren't able to be expressed, it's, 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 I've seen some really heartbreaking scenarios. The refusal to forgive, the refusal to let things go, um, it, it wreaks havoc. And it has repercussions for both the dying person and the people that remain. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's incredible. It's so instructional. Um, and when I talk about presencing yourself with the dying, I mean, for example, a person at the very last stages, you know, for example, so a person within three, four weeks of their dying, they start, I mean, they are, oftentimes people think that you can just carry on as before with a dying person. So let's say the dying person was very intellectually engaging and loved, you know, conversations about art and culture and so forth. They, be- they can become very, very exhausted by conversation. And yet, maybe the loved ones want to continue having that sort of engagement 
when the dying person needs something very different, which is just a very peaceful presence, low. You know, I always I always tell people to just try to keep the drama to a minimum, noise level to a minimum. There there is a quality of sacred space that you can invoke um, that you that chaplains uh, are accustomed to invoking uh, or it, it, it requires a fair amount of centering on the part of the of the chaplain or the spiritual caregiver or the death doula it requires um, tremendous attention and if you can maintain a, a spacious awareness and attention uh, you're better able to discern. Th- I mean, funny, funny things come to you. For example, with my late teacher, it just became obvious. At one moment, it became obvious to me that his 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 uh, blanket was too heavy on his physical body, and so we were able to get a, a very lightweight comforter. These are when I talk about the needs of the dying. It includes everything from the very kind of detaily things about their physical comfort to more subtle things is there how can family members or people who are going to remain tune into that those needs well it takes a little bit of humility for example sometimes um sometimes family members uh you know it's a cultural thing, I think, in the West, where we think, um, well, my, my, my loud and talkative personality is just who I am, and I'm not going to change that for anyone. Well, okay, uh, but that means that um, you, your presence might not be optimal for the dying person, might not be optimally comforting or peaceful. You know, we there's a there's a term in chaplaining called non-anxious presence, and uh, and so that's why I say it takes a bit of humility to, and you know, a lot of times um, th- there's so many missed opportunities by people once again cleaving. I'm going to do things my way, I, and and not tuning into the demands for. I, I mean. Sometimes I've seen incredible things <laughs> of, you know, people being very loud around a dying person, being very chatty. I mean, think about the times that you're sick, like you're really sick with a really bad flu. I mean, you can use that and derive the rest, you know. Mm. Do you like to be talked at loudly when you're feeling really sick? So I imagine like, that... I like m- it down. Yeah. You like it low-key, right? Low-key, very much, yeah. Yeah? And so imagine that scenario time multiplied by 10 or 20. How much more you're going to want a low-key. Just... And as the the person is... um, You know, there's there's a wonderful book by a hospice nurse named Mary Callanan. She wrote some wonderful books, Final Gifts and Final Journeys, I believe, are the titles where she describes um, near-death awareness, NDA. And this is the type of language that dying people will start to use, and it's very symbolic language. For example, you'll have a dying person say something like, give me my passport, I need my passport. I need my passport right now. We have to go now. And they'll sort of make the movements of getting out of bed, and and a lot of, you know, before she wrote this book, I mean, a lot of people had this idea, oh, they're delusional, they're delirious, they're hallucinating. No, it's none of that. It's that they're using symbolic language to describe the fact that they are going on a journey. Hmm. And so instead of saying, oh, you're, oh they're, deli- you know, they're delirious, the way that you presence yourself for NDA, for near-death awareness and its language, is, yep, your passport's right here. Everything's ready to go whenever you're ready. So there's a way to talk to a person who's using that language. And a lot of times, and I've seen this as well, 
family members will dismiss it or they won't pick up the cues. Like you can, you can gain great cues about what the dying person needs by what they're saying with that language. Unresolved things can come up and you, you, you just engage it. You usually just simply by asking a follow-up question. Could it be that family members or whoever's around this person is really uncomfortable engaging? Of course. Because shit will come up for themselves. Of course. Like for them. Of course. Exactly what I mean by we're not educated. We don't know exactly. The family member's own stuff gets triggered. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a way to work with that within yourself, and this is largely what CPE training helps us do. In fact, that's a huge part of CPE training. CPE? Clinical pastoral education. Gotcha. And that's exactly what, you know, we have, you know, group, you know, discussions about the patients that we're working with. We, we are, uh, we have to discuss our own process in relation to a particular patient that we might be uh, engaging with. Um, what triggers came up for you? How did you work through it as a chaplain? So that when you're going and, and being with the patient, uh, ideally you've been able to get a handle on your own triggers. But this is where, for me personally, meditation and Buddhist training really facilitated because I had done a lot of that already. So it allowed me a certain, um, it gave me a certain ease working with, uh, with patients without becoming triggered myself. And that's very, uh, that's very useful. Yeah, that, f- that form, meditative training, uh, any any type of stilling the mind training is very useful. Of course, many other things, IFS and internal shadow family work. Systems. Yeah, internal okay. family systems, shadow work. Uh, yeah, so that you so that you're coming without expectations, without uh, uh, without judgment, being able to. And it's also very much really important to say is that it's not about fixing a situation. And this means that you have to be able to witness suffering without becoming overwhelmed and overcome by the suffering you're witnessing. And that's another, that's, that's a sort of a, a, its own skill set. The ability to witness suffering without either shutting down, without fight, flight, or freeze, let me put it that way. Mm. And you're talking about the family members or the di- dying person? Um, the ch- well, I was in that case, I was talking about a, 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 de- you know, a good chaplain will be able to uh-huh. avoid fight, flight. Now, if you're a family member that can avoid fight, flight, or freeze in relation to the dying person, all the better. It takes a bit of training. But that's where the chaplain comes in yes. and helps out. That's right. Right. You can probably model for them how to be. Ideally, you sh- you, yes, if, if they're receptive and they have the humility to sort of take the cue. I mean, for example, I remember being told when I first got to, excuse me, uh, to Albuquerque, one of the staff chaplains there just sort of mentioned, you know, don't expect to be invited to participate in the death of uh, first American, of a Native American, because they tend to be very private. But my experience was the opposite. Um, I participated in many, and part of it was that I think that the strategy that I that I sort of was relying upon was I was mirroring their own b- because they ha- tend to have very very low key body language. They tend to be very mum, very quiet, not talkative. And I found that if I mirrored, if I just modeled their approach, they would let me participate in there. And it was an extraordinary thing to witness some of the, some of the natives whose relatives were maybe, um, you know, 
important uh, spiritual leaders within their communities and so forth. Mm. That was amazing. Uh, so, um, yeah. What's... So, people listening to this, uh, I think there's a lot of takeaways already. You know, I'm grateful for about how do you kind of the the three points you said could you repeat those uh for uh meditating on mm. death i'm gonna die everyone is we all are going to die no one knows when and how do i live optimally or how can i train now for a good death and it is, it is about a good life, but what does you need to think about really carefully about what a good life means. As I said, I've never heard anybody regretting at the time of their death. Um, you know, I've never heard anybody, I should have made more money, or I should have bought more things, or I should have... Um, it's really, it's consistent that uh, a lot of the regret has to do with... Um, not uh, not doing more, not taking advantage of opportunities to to serve, to help, to alleviate pain for others. It's fascinating to watch. You could call that as, you know, you have regrets because you led a small life yeah. versus as big as you could have. Yes, you could put it that way. Or you led, you... you you know, I think at the end of the day, we secretly all long to be superheroes. Mm -hmm. And superheroes are characterized by kindness and the willingness to sacrifice something to make the situation better for someone, even if it's just one person. It could be one person, it could be a whole community. Um, yeah, I would have to say that's... Uh, and when you say that people should meditate on these three things, how would someone who has no meditation background do that? I think just thinking of the words. Contemplating? Yeah, contemplating the words, I'm going to die. Now, this isn't supposed to send you into a desperate, you know, fearful, you know, miserable, depressed state of mind. But there will be emotional consequences of saying that to yes. yourself and yes, facing and that. That's right. That's right. And I and 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 you know, some people might walk away thinking, well, why don't I just end it for myself now? Well, why not? Because <laughs> that reminds me of a story of a young man that was in the ICU the second time for an OD for a drug overdose. And uh, he had tried to do himself in several times, at least seven attempted suicides. And uh, he was 18. And I said to him, what makes you think that offing your body is going to stop your misery? You have no way of knowing that. You have no way of knowing that your mental pain might not be 10 times worse if you kill yourself, it's no, it's no difference from, you know, killing yourself or killing someone else. It's still murder. And, you know, the, I, I don't want to go into the whole discussion about uh, euthanasia and so forth, but, but uh, I, I, you know what, I've seen too much to, um, to feel uh, it's not meaning, things are not meaningless. Your life is not meaningless. And offing, offing the body, you know, the idea that we're going to die anyway, might as well just do myself in. No, I wish it was that simple. It's not. And partly that is because we have no way of knowing what's on the other side. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you can look at certain, you can look at the entailment of certain actions even within a life. You can see limitations bearing down on you if you behave a particular way. It's not high math. 
If you go around killing people, the, li the limitations will impose themselves on you, whether it's through prison or through being shot at back. So we can safely say that there are certain behaviors that conduce to more choices instead of less. And we need to pay attention to what those are. That's what cultivation is. That's what, ev you know, spiritual evolution is. And there's the no-sayers that, that you know, I, I've, I've met and spoken to some really cynical people who want to say that, you know, oh, even good people are fakes or whatever. Well, try it on for size and see what your subjective experience. It's not about any kind of, do you know, dogma. Or just try. Try looking at your, your experience from one moment to the next when you follow a particular course of action versus another course of action. At least have the, you know, the empirical attitude. At least have the scientific method in, in that. At least have enough uh, openness and humility to just check it out. Mm. It's not about what beliefs you hold or... It's about your experience from one moment to the next. Maria, what a treat to contemplate on this with you. Oh, it's been my joy. It's been my pleasure. And thank you from my heart for the opportunity. To me, it's an incredible opportunity to share on this topic. I'm so grateful. Do you have any uh, parting words? Oh, I just... Um, Live well so you can die well. Mm. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. My honor. <laughs>